0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners.
2: Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery. Content
1: warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of two girls and violence.
0: Today, we'll be speaking to two experts who we feel can shed some light about elements of the case against Richard Allen in the murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams.
1: We spoke to a firearms expert who has sold thousands of firearms and shoots competitively. We'll call him Gary. That's not his real name, but we have verified his identity and level of expertise.
0: We also connected with an expert whose investigative work has supported both the prosecution and defense in criminal cases. He's a former law enforcement officer who now works as a professional investigator. We'll call him Jason Zod. That's not his real name, but we have verified his identity and professional record.
1: You can expect more episodes like this one going forward. We'll be drawing on the expertise of a wide variety of different people, including attorneys, firearm experts, and individuals with law enforcement expertise. Some may prefer to remain anonymous. In those cases, rest assured that we are verifying their identity and level of expertise before airing their comments. In some instances, the experts may disagree, signifying a more contested subject. In other areas, we may get a bit of a consensus going.
0: Either way, we want everyone who cares deeply about the Delphi case to get the benefit of these insights. We want you to be more informed about the issues as many of them may not be super apparent to anyone outside these fields. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist.
1: And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney.
0: We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet.
1: Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders.
0: We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, Thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is
1: The Delphi Murders Conversations with a Firearms Expert and a Professional Investigator. First, Gary, the firearms expert, will get into a bit of background on 40 caliber weapons in general. One thing you mentioned in your email was that you thought that the choice of caliber in this case was uh, interesting. Can you elaborate on your thoughts on the choice of caliber, the 40 caliber?
3: Sure. So, part of my Thinking about 40 caliber is in today's world not necessarily the choice of buying that specific handgun in, in 2001, which that I believe was the year it was purchased. But in, in today's world, I believe you know seeing a 40 caliber at a, a crime scene or just hearing someone has a 40 caliber, it, it stands out a little bit to me. Being that I've sold thousands of handguns, it's it's a very rare choice these days. And typically, when I do sell it, it's either an ex law enforcement person or a current law enforcement person or somebody who's been around that LE adjacent um, who's heard about the caliber. That's because it, it was a duty weapon for a while in the 90s up until maybe 2000, mid-2000s where they started going back to 9 millimeter. But it, it was really developed for law enforcement and law enforcement kind of sticks to it. And these days, really, the only people buying or using it are, are LEOs or ex leos
0: is there is there a reason for that? Is you know I, you mentioned LEs trying to stick with what they know. Um, is it is there something wrong with a forty caliber? Like that would make it less optimal for other people?
3: I, I guess so. I mean, even you hear it's a dying caliber now, and the reason is, I guess going back to the early nineties when it was developed, and it was developed for the FBI after an FBI shootout in Miami. In the late 80s, where they had nine millimeters and they shot the suspects multiple times, and it really didn't affect them as much as I guess they were hoping.
0: Gary is speaking specifically about the 1986 FBI Miami shootout, and we figured we'd delve into that as it's an important moment in law enforcement history. On April 11th, 1986, a squadron of FBI agents in Miami initiated a search for two men suspected of robbery and murder. Their names were Michael Lee Platt and William Russell Maddox. The agents chased the pair down, resulting in a multi-car collision. A four-minute shootout ensued, resulting in 145 shots fired. Platt and Maddox were hit multiple times, but they didn't go down immediately. They tried to shoot their way out, killing FBI Special Agents Benjamin Grogan and Jerry Dove in the process before succumbing to their injuries.
1: According to a 2020 article from Gun Digest, the FBI considered the shootout an ammunition failure and ran tests that eventually determined that a 40 caliber round would be the optimum service round to be carried by FBI agents.
3: So the 40 caliber was developed as a more powerful round. It's it's actually like a 10 millimeter. It is a 10 millimeter in terms of the size of it. So it's a full millimeter, bigger than nine millimeter, but it's a lot more powerful. It's a lot faster, but that makes it a lot snappier. So it's a little more unpleasant to shoot. I guess you could say the nine millimeter, it's snappier, especially in the guns these days that are, you know, polymer framed, lighter, smaller. Now the pt six is a, a, a heavy aluminum pistol with a steel frame, but, um, The the 40 started getting more unpopular just because it's a little snappier and and follow-up shots are um, harder to get back on target. So that's actually why the FBI and and law enforcement in the mid-2000s switched back to 9mm, realizing that the 9mm round had improved and the the 40 caliber was snappier, harder to get back on target for follow-up shots. It kind of went in and out of popularity pretty quickly.
1: Gary did tell us that some enthusiasts would decry the idea that the 40 is a dying caliber. And he stressed that he was just speaking based on his own experiences and opinions.
0: Next, let's get into the specifics of the bullet evidence in the murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams.
1: So why do you uh, suppose that there was a round on the ground? Right, so... uh... There's
3: a few reasons I can think of, and maybe I'll list those on what I feel is most likely to least likely. Uh, the most likely is the person was just trying to get more compliance. So if you think about getting compliance, there's a couple of steps you can go through. Um, you can say you have a gun, and you can show it, you can point it, and then you can rack it, which you pull the slide back. If it's loaded, the round will pop out. After you rack it, you can shoot in the air or shoot the ground, and then it's obviously the next step shooting at, at a person. But it, it's most likely to me that in trying to gain compliance, the handgun was racked, around popped out during that escalation. And it seems like the suspect did not want to fire because it was the day and they, they were not planning to fire, so obviously they couldn't escalate further and they just stopped at that escalation point. That's the, the most likely is it was racked for compliance, I think. So second most likely... In, in my view, would be maybe the magazine came out either because of a, a struggle, someone grabs it, the mag releases, or even using a pistol as a striking object sometimes, depending on how, you, how you're hitting, the mag can either get stuck more or it can fall out if the mag release is hit. I, I don't think that's very likely with the configuration of the P226. It's a, a duty weapon. The mag release doesn't stick out a lot, um, but that is not a, a, a thing if the mag magazine comes out it's put back in natural reaction for anyone with a, a weapon is going to re-rack and then uh, the round will come out as well i guess third most likely is that um there was malfunction I, again i think that's third because i don't think it, it doesn't seem like there was maybe an intent to fire the weapon and typically most malfunctions are stovepipes or something like that that occurs after a shot it's the, the empty casing that's jamming up the, the weapon. It's not a an unfired bullet. And when it is an unfired bullet that causes the malfunction, it's typically a light primer strike where there may be a light primer mark, and then you would re-rack to get the dud round out, and then you could fire the next one. It doesn't seem like it was a malfunction to me. And then the last reason that I could think of is if for some reason, either going in or coming out, you wanted to unload the firearm and put that round in your pocket to have an unloaded weapon. You could do that and maybe it fell out of your pocket or you dropped it while you were unloading. If you didn't want to walk back to your car with a loaded weapon, you could try to unload it and maybe lose lose the round. I also want to just say that the 226 is a very high quality, well-known pistol. It's a a good company. Malfunctions are, are pretty rare there too. So that's kind of also ruling that out for me.
0: What else could you tell us about the SIG Sauer P226?
3: So it was also kind of developed for, I believe it was developed for an army program going against another weapon that was ultimately chosen for, I think, cost, but a Beretta. Um, And then after that, law enforcement really picked up the the P226 and uh, some other agencies and and other countries, you know, military and, and agencies carry it still, I think, famously the navy seals carry it but it, yeah it's it's also a law enforcement weapon and um even if you go to google and just type in p two twenty six forty caliber you're going to see a lot of police trade-ins for sale just because of you know the cycle of nine millimeter to 40 caliber back to nine millimeter glocks typically now then these police agencies are selling a ton of these p226 40 calibers so that's just something you can even look up on google to to that this was a uh, well-known weapon to police carried by police and the caliber even especially so that's another interesting piece. I
0: wanted to ask you know and this is probably a dumb question but bear with me is it considered a rare weapon or a luxury weapon?
3: That's I guess a tough question I mean it's it's popular because of the quality of it it's not something that you know in in all my years of selling that's that's very popular to buy, especially now, again, looking back to 2001, it's a little different. I, I wasn't selling then, but it, now it's typically guns you would conceal carry smaller, nine millimeters, not as heavy as a, you know, a, a steel P226. It is rare in, in the sense that it's not uh, like a first choice. It's not a carry weapon. It's on an everyday weapon. That if, if you only have one, one firearm, that's, it's probably not a P226.
1: Now, you mentioned you own a, a similar weapon. What kind of ejection marks are left when you uh, cycle uh, around through the weapon?
3: Sure, I, I own the, the exact P26, but a 9mm, and I, I did do some, uh, I guess, visual studies myself where I ejected some rounds and did notice some deep indentations from the extractor on the the rim of the, the, uh, round. Obviously that's just visual and I'm sure with high powered microscopes, it, it is very possible to see tooling marks, um, on that. Just one other thing that's interesting that, that I was thinking of, especially if this round that was ejected was the top of, of the magazine, which it, it would have been. And, um, a- assuming that this maybe is stored in, in a house, that top bullet could have been ejected multiple times. And I see this with other people in their carry weapons. They they load it in the morning. They may go out with the weapon. And when they come home, they eject that top around before putting it back in their gun safe or wherever they keep it. And they'll put that top around back in the magazine. So it's even possible that this had multiple ejection marks around the rim of it, uh, giving the police even uh, you know more things to look at.
0: That is a really interesting point and 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 if i may ask this is again someone who's not informed about guns at all you know what is is that safe to kind of keep putting it back in and you know i mean is that is that just
3: to save bullets or it's some people are uncomfortable with a loaded weapon in in their house so that's what they do just to not have it i've even seen it and some people don't like to carry a loaded weapon as a ccw I, i think that's that's Another subject altogether, but I've seen seen people unload it before they go into certain places, um, and so it is pretty common to to unload that that round and put it back in the magazine. And you're, I mean, you're not going to throw the bullet away every time you eject one. It's it's a perfectly fine. The, the bullets will last you know decades with no issues. So it's it, it's just the the comfortability of having a loaded weapon that causes people to do that.
0: That makes sense. And, and what you said about multiple ejection marks is very interesting. I know, you know, people have said that there's more marks where it goes through a gun right when it's fired, all the grooving on the, you know, muzzle and stuff. But this seems, you know, if, if this was kind of hit a bunch of times with the pin, that could be a little bit more unique.
3: Right. It's, just, it's more than just one example to look at. You can compare multiple examples on the same round.
1: A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin I was wondering in terms of racking the round and then kind of ejecting it, is that something in your experience that, you know, somebody who has a gun would would miss or not notice? Or I mean, one thing people have pointed out is, you know, if this person is doing this crime, you know, how could they miss this bullet if it ejected? And I guess, what are your thoughts on that?
3: I don't think you're going to... It's hard to say, you know, I've never been in a, a situation well, obviously like that with, with stress going on and, and who knows, you know, everything involved. But I, I think it would have been noticed flying out um, and it probably depending on how hard you wreck it, it could fly, you know, three or four feet um, away and get lost in leaves. It could be hard to find. Um, but I think it would be noticed even in a stressful situation. Um, but, it, you know, even from my own experience of handling firearms for so long, I I've always assumed that um, ballistics is typically a fired round, e- even on the, on the bullet with the the marks from the rifling or the casing. Uh, because when you fire a bullet, the, the casing expands very rapidly while it's in the chamber. And it just, it imprints the, all of the, the faces of the, the chamber and the the breech face where the primer sits. So, with an unfired round, uh, I can see a lot of people not thinking that there would be any markings on that that could be could be found, except for, of course, fingerprints, which would be probably the most most concerned.
0: And and then I guess you know there's obviously been a huge amount of discourse around firearms uh, in the Delphi case. You know, given you know ever since the uh, probable cause affidavit came out, and I was just wondering. Are there any sort of um, misunderstandings or myths that you're seeing pop up or misinformation that you think it's important for people to understand or that you'd like to clarify?
3: I don't think so. I mean, in terms of, you know, I, I can't speak to the the forensic analysis at all, so I'm I'm a bystander there. But in terms of the bullet being found or the firearm itself, I think, you know, there's just been discussions on why the bullet was on the ground or was ejected to begin with. And I I think the most popular theory is I'm in agreement with that it was wrecked. Uh, But I I guess I don't see a, a lot of misconceptions or I may have missed them.
0: Now let's get to Jason Zod. He previously worked in law enforcement where he investigated crimes on behalf of the prosecution. Now he's a professional investigator, which often sees him doing work for the defense and he's worked quite a range of cases over his career. We're talking everything from murder to internet crimes against children or ICAC
1: cases. He'll be sharing his thoughts on the probable cause affidavit and what it tells us about the case against Richard Allen.
4: When I was a cop, I worked a lot of those because I had homicide experience as well as a you know, multitude of, of cross-disciplinary uh, things with just common investigations uh, Or vice narcotics, all these other things. So I, I was kind of an all purpose jerk on that end. And I would see all these different common denominators pop up. And when I saw this and they, you know, they actually call it the Snapchat murders. I'm like, Oh, they're missing a ton of evidence or they they just haven't released it because those phones, you know, I know how this goes down. Uh, I worked with a task force that was mostly out of Greensboro and you know, they, they had a case. Uh, I was not on, but they had a guy show up to meet uh, who he thought was a 13-year-old girl. And when they did the search warrant on his car after the the takedown, he's got garbage bags, uh, some sort of hand-like reciprocating saw, and like all these body, a bag of lime, all these body disposal things in his trunk. So, you know, you've you've leaked the chasm at that point. And uh, so I was like, oh, okay, well get to the phones, get to the phones. This is social media intensive. And for so long, I didn't hear any of that coming out of this case. So it kind of, you know, made me froth at the mouth. I'm like, why are you not looking at this? And then here we are.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's so deeply upsetting. And it's, it's, I mean, the social media, the internet angle of this seemed to be something in our view that investigators were really making a lot of headway on recently and yeah. now we're kind of with this with this PCA, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. How this, how, what this factors in for the health of the case? It's it has basically nothing about an internet connection. It's very much, uh, you know, nothing about other perpetrators possibly as well. It's just right. very much like on its face, very well could be a single perpetrator. And I guess as someone who's followed along with this, what are your thoughts on that?
4: I, I want to be fair. I've worked defense cases I have worked prosecution cases you know I've literally lived on both sides of the cue ball and I look at this and I see blaring deficiencies in just the basic language and chain of logic as to what has happened here I can't honestly you know I've talked to you know the, the attorneys that I work with one in particular or I try not to work with people who were Anywhere near as dumb as I am. I work with some really smart people. And uh, to be honest, it's just like, what, you know, everybody's like, what, what is this? What's this language? You know, I don't have a manner of death in a murder case. You haven't told me what tools or implements, what this call, you know, uh, uh, just give me a broad cause of death. You know, I can't think of a murder warrant I ever typed where I didn't say, you know, I had one single stab wound to the chest. It was, you know, a single stab wound murder. It was very, it was the first one I ever did. Very simple cause of death. There, there's not going to be anything more complicated than that. You don't have that here. And then, you know, you're alleging firearm evidence with no listed cause of death in this most recent warrant or, or uh, affidavit, and it's an unspent round. And I can't. I can't even go into the amount of conjecture and pseudoscience that you're going to get brought up in court about matching an unspent round definitively with a single expert. You don't even have a backup opinion list by you know a lab tech for ballistics. It, it's it's so odd. It's so weird. And then you know, not to not to go too much in the wayback machine, but. Found this really cool podcast called The Murder Sheet. That found a, a warrant, search warrant from twenty seventeen by the FBI, where you've got an agent who is listing, uh, kind of a cause of death. Well, you know, basically it's redacted, but they're, they're implying edge weapons were used. Well, you know what the hell does that have to do with a firearm? At this point, you know, sure the the charging language says kidnapping, but it says. Richard Allen caused the death of this person. Okay. Well, how did that happen? Like, give me something. Led them into a situation, something. But I don't have, I don't have the the chain of logic. I would feel comfortable putting my name on this paper in the charging language or an, a probable cause affidavit for a murder. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to cast too many aspersions. I'm sure that they are, There's some sort of strategy. There is a strategy, but it's just—it's so wild to me that this is—you know—I would have considered it fast and loose if I was working on this case to be working this way, at at best.
0: This might get into the realm of speculation, and and let me know if if it's too speculative to say at this point. But I mean, if you're if you're stretching, if you're thinking about what strategy could they be employing here, do you have any? guesses on why they would do this
4: well i i I have a little motto in my my lexicon of of silly things is i try not to speculate i prefer deduction you know it's okay to to do something but when you get into speculation you know it it, that in a nickel is exactly what it's worth Mm -hmm. so surely from a deductive point of view you have someone in a courtroom who is a da the elected da saying, you know, there are other actors in this. The statute which it's charged under is the Indiana version of the felony murder uh, charge, which I'm I'm sure Kevin is sick of hearing uh, (laughs) about constitutional law and all that stuff. So I won't bore you with that. You've had uh, excellent guests who've explained uh, constitutional law as far as felony murder goes. But, uh, you know, those those are charges that show that they do not believe this is an independent actor. And that's that's just deductive. And again, the anomalies of when was this bullet collected? Because I don't have that in the Ron Logan search warrant in 2017. You know, and why are they identifying this bullet sheerly by ballistics reports? And you're you're telling me at this point you don't have fingerprint analysis listed with this because. Everybody who's ever loaded a magazine on a semi-automatic weapon knows that almost everybody does it the same way. Take the bullet out, stick it at the top of the magazine, and you take your thumb of your dominant hand, you press it down, slide it in there. Well, on on brass rounds, that leaves a pretty good fingerprint. If you didn't fire a weapon, why did you eject the round? Was, was it found then? You know they they listed in the uh, probable cause affidavit as being. Uh, four feet from the position, I'm sorry, less than two feet from uh, victim two, which would have been Libby by how they're listing their victims. It's still not a contemporaneous statement. And I've seen prosecutions mislead people before on things like that. So, you know, an evidence control form that shows you who and when it was collected uh, would be a huge, huge thing to, to know about there. I'm not, asserting Mr. Allen's innocence or guilt or anything like that. But it's certainly a question that popped in my head.
0: And it's one of those things. I mean, one thing we've heard a lot is that, you know, probable cause affidavits are not the whole case. And, you know, there will be more most likely. But at the same time, it's sounding like from your experience, is it fair to say that this is not necessary, not just thin, but kind of bewildering?
4: It's it, certainly bewildering. I've never seen any case go like this, ever. And I've seen some weird, weird stuff over the years. Um, th- this particular case is one of those things that it, it, it is a career case. Whoever gets it on whatever side, no matter what the facts are, everything that has, has come out so far and the, the near exhaustion that the, the public discourse has led this to, you know, everybody's just like, I don't know how much more I can take of this <laughs> kind of thing. You know, real life usually doesn't work this way. Murder is what it is. Humans usually aren't very inventive and complicated animals when it comes to that. And there are only so many black hat, you know, mustache twirling villains in the world who are going to be super geniuses and pull off, you know, mad capers. This, this seems born of a lot of ineptitude. And not necessarily by ill will, but just, you know, people who weren't prepared to work this.
1: Uh, I thought it was interesting in your uh, first email to us, you noted that the extractor for uh, Mr. Allen's weapon actually fits in three different modeled guns of various calibers. Could you elaborate on that and what that might mean?
4: Yeah, the uh, the extractor and the ejector uh, assembly, both in the, uh, the particular weapon he has, you can YouTube a video about how to change those out. And basically, what that means is these are not little small, little meathead firearms history lessons. Uh, handguns, for the most part, used to be made by machinists in shops, you know, gun presses and whatnot. And they were assembled by gunsmiths who would kind of fine tune and fit everything together. It was a lot like clock making. Uh, you know, your your 1911s and all that good stuff was, you know, they were work, kind of works of art in in that way. Everything had to be precisely fit. And you had guys who were specially trained to do all this complicated stuff with, you know, uncaptured springs in the assembly and all that stuff. Won't go into that. And then Glock came along and Glock, uh, the gentleman who, who created that firearm, he didn't know really anything about handguns. He just knew how to automate things and how to make stuff. So he simplified all that. And instead of having uh, the machinist approach to where, you know, you had a craftsman and all this, he he did it in the old Ford way where it was a factory assembly line kind of thing. Parts were interchangeable. Uh, You know, dummies like me could take out a barrel and change out or whatever. You know, this was made to be a a mass manufacturer thing. And when that happened, and so many of the people in the gun industry started following suit, a couple things uh, changed, like extractors and you know all those types of ejector assemblies and stuff like that. Well, they didn't become; they weren't as unique anymore. Uh, barrels weren't as unique anymore. Firearms became more uniform. Uh, a nine millimeter and a twenty-two are two of the hardest calibers to get firearm identification for, like, you know, an expert to sign off for a lot of times because there's so many of them, and it's just a question of it better be something really unique. If they had something of the effect of, you know, a projectile, something that was launched down the barrel of the gun, like you've heard this before, I'm just quickly repeating it, you have such a greater point of comparison. It would be something that added a lot more weight to the totality of identifying a firearm, because the life of a firearm, that gun's going to change. The barrel is going to change more than anything. Uh, it will develop, in addition to the lands and grooves it already has, it will develop some pitting, um, just you know even microscopic that will add to all these things. The ejector assembly in that weapon is as standard as it gets. And on top of that, it can be adjusted. The extractor, uh, I can send you a YouTube video now. On that very weapon, you can see when uh, a gentleman who is a gunsmith and certified by that company um, puts in the extractor, he's like, well, if you don't have enough uh, torque, you can do this and change it that way. We don't know what's happened in the life of that weapon. It was purchased in the early 2000s, and parts can move, things can happen. And it's just too... Too many variable, variables to, I would think, try to identify a weapon like that based off of sheerly injector and extra- extractor, which uh, is just so little little information in that. It would have to be something very, very telling for me to be, even be comfortable with presenting it as such weighty evidence that it's going to be part of my <laughs> the linchpin of my probable cause in a homicide case.
0: I guess my question would be, since it is an older gun, if there was something unusual about the extractor, as in it got damaged in a very specific way, something like that, would that be a little bit better for the prosecution?
4: Or, Well, here, here's the thing. It has been so long since that homicide to now. Who's to say when that damage occurred? Who's to say there's not a gun out there that is manufactured in an identical fashion, but wouldn't have suffered the exact same damage? This is just devil's advocate. This is what a defense attorney's going to throw out there. And it's a pretty good argument that, you know, a firearm only does so many things, an extractor only does so many things. If it's bent like that and defendant one's gun, why couldn't it be? something from someone else who, you know, the firearm's going to function the same way, could likely incur the same damage. It's not very strong, weighty evidence by itself.
0: That's a so. really excellent point and, and very yeah. well said, I think. It's it's one of those things that, uh, you know, that's, that's why in terms of tool mark identification, the, you know, the spent round tends to be more of the gold standard. Most people oh, yeah. we've talked to, and I wonder if this is, have you, in any of the cases you've worked, do you remember ever seeing extractor ejection marks even being brought up in evidence?
4: Yes. Um, in in what I, I call our ballistics lab in North Carolina is run by our state Bureau of Investigation. And they're the ones I have far and away the most experience with. You know, I, I've never worked one with an unspent round to, to the best of my recollection. And none of the ones where my name's been on the line. <sighs> so much is in the primer strike as opposed to the extractor and ejector. You know, primer strikes are a lot more telling usually because that's how the gun is at the time, you know, how it's configured at the time. If you seize the weapon in a somewhat contemporaneous, like within a year of the case, it's pretty argument, pretty good argument that that primer strike, which usually has a little bit more character, uh, where the, the firing pin of the weapon strikes the back of the bullet on the primer, And the the gun fires, as far as shell casings go, that's a lot, usually has a lot more character than extractors and ejectors. Uh, Because those are moving parts, they're rapidly moving parts, and they, uh, they tend to, even in manufactured things, have a little bit more character specific to that weapon than extractors and ejectors.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: I want to step away from the gun for a second and just go to one broader issue that you alluded to previously. And I think this is this is something we think a lot about, too, um, in terms of you have this angle with Kagan Klein, Anthony Schatz, that's, you know been publicly linked by police to the case. And then you have this this Richard Allen come up, and there's no no indication of a link there in the probable cause affidavit, although you do have mm-hmm. sort of uh, comments from law enforcement and the prosecutor indicating that they think more people are involved. So, you know, there's kind of a lot of vagueness out there and a lot of speculation swirling. And in your view, having worked these cases for both sides, if the prosecutor doesn't come up with a narrative to – explain or exclude that or, or something by the time we get around to Rick, Rick Allen's trial is, is that a problem for the prosecution that they've sort of opened that door but then never really closed or opened it fully
4: it's not only a problem it's possibly the fatality of their case if they don't address that at some point I you know if it were my case or if I were if I were just, you know, sitting in the in the gallery there, and I'm you know, just coming to watch another detective's murder trial, I would I would just cringe uh, if because the defense attorney's going to bring that up. The one of the the problems that's going to happen for the prosecution in this case is the absolute multitude of of people who have been suspected and cases developed in the the public eye by, you know, different folks over the years. And they're going to look at the strength of those cases and they're going to try to throw them at the prosecution, you know, in whatever order Indiana law allows them to to present that. Um, In the constitutional sense, I think they have a pretty wide open door since they have already put the Keegan-Klein stuff out there. (laughs) I, I think... Back to uh, one of the old detectives that trained me when I was coming up. You know, it, when I look at a case like this where you've got someone who, you know, by admission, is communicating with one of the girls via social media, you know, that day, and, you know, it, I, I think they pretty much alluded to and stated officially that they were supposed to meet. I know Mr. Mr. Klein had said that in one of the interviews. And, you know, I go back to that old detective. He's like, well, you know, you're allowed to believe in God. You're allowed to believe in and He went through this whole thing, but, he's like, but you're not allowed to believe in coincidence anymore. Son, you're a detective. And, uh, there's, there's meat to that. There, there's no way I can resolve in my head that there's not substance to all those things happening at once and it being unrelated. You know, you could, I would say you could win the lottery and get hit by a meteor in the same day, more likely than that could happen. Just in my experience.
0: Absolutely. And I know, I mean, there's, I mean, Kagan Klein did tell one of Libby's friends via message that he and her were supposed to meet up that day, but she never showed up. So that's pretty uh, interesting. And then you do have, you know, you have all this stuff. I mean, we've reported on the Kagan Klein angle quite extensively, but I imagine we've only reported on a fraction of what they've collected on that. And the defense is going to be able to access all of that. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Thank
4: Thank you. you. Thank you for being responsible with that.
0: We Um, really appreciate that. We, we, and I mean, it's one of those things too. It's like the media coverage is one thing, but the fact that they've been doing it, defense gets all of that in discovery. Right. Going back to the, Affidavit. You mentioned kind of the the idea that this wasn't taken to a magistrate first; that it was taken to a judge directly.
4: What I've learned of an Indiana uh, system is this, yeah, you know, and this is just very, yeah, you know, just casual looking. Is that they have a lot of the same um, initial arrest procedure that we do here in North Carolina and, and many states do whether it's a magistrate or a justice of the peace, there's a judicial official who's generally either on call or in an office that's open 24 seven, you know, usually around a jail or courthouse that you go to once you are placed under arrest and probable initial probable cause is hurt there. This didn't happen this time. It was very odd. It was not in public. It was a private hearing. I don't know where it was to be perfectly honest with you. I would guess that they, either opened up the courthouse or something, had, had something where this gentleman was, you know, under the cover of darkness, uh, put before a judicial official and probable cause was an issue. And we've seen that probable cause now. And I don't know this judge, um, but given what I've seen of his record, his length of service, and, you know, I don't believe he was necessarily prepared uh, for this level of scrutiny. And this, you know, I, I I'm glad he had the wisdom to uh, understand that, but I, I do think, uh, you know, some of the professionals I've worked with in the past, in the present, that there would have been some issue uh, presenting it like that and, and only like that. Just in my case,
0: as far as the uh, the underlying felony going goes, um, it seems like they're indicating that it's kidnapping. Could you speak more to that and why that might be a little bit unusual in terms of what we did see in the PCA?
4: The PCA was not thorough at all on the underlying felony. It implied it. It was named specifically in the charging documents. But I've never seen it done like that uh, to the best of my recollection. And you know, to not kind of link what you're trying to say together in, in an affidavit is really leaving you open to you know, again, I go back to the okay, well, they were killed. Well, how how were they killed? And why did this guy, you know, you said kidnapping. How did he kidnap him? How did he, kidnap him? Uh, he said there's a bullet there. Well, you know, What was that consistent with the matter of death? You know, you, you've got Two dead bodies, you're saying he murdered them. Give me at least a last little piece saying, you know, in by what manner in the broadest strokes, you know, you know, if you pulled a bug's bunny and he dropped an anvil on their head or whatever, give me something. I, I don't, I don't know many judicial officials that would be comfortable with, with how that went down just personally.
0: Absolutely. And and I guess, you know, I think many members of the public who follow this case will have a lot of the same questions that you do. And how can we, like, what should we, as people who are following it, be looking out for in the coming weeks as, you know, this continues to go on? Will there be opportunities, do you think, um, to maybe learn some of this or why they did certain things? Or is this going to be something that just kind of ultimately will have to come out at trial?
4: The defense is going to have a strategy, and, you know, these are not inept attorneys. Uh, these guys are, you know, pretty sharp. I think you're going to see a probable cause hearing, and, uh, I don't know that the judge will allow it to be a closed court session probable cause hearing because of just the, potential overreach you've already got for sealing documents and secrecy. And, you know, it kind of threw this dude away in a hole uh, for a while. And, you know, he, d- he didn't have PC as I know of. It was just like, okay, uh, hang on, time out. Still America. We we still, you know, do our business and the like. I think your, your probable cause hearing will be the next good source of information. And I think they'll probably move for that to happen in January. Uh, Kevin, you know, you, you've got a lot of experience in courtrooms one way or another. Uh, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, it's it's very unusual.
0: Yeah, and we're concerned. I mean, and other people who have reported on this are concerned about, you know, the throwing. I mean, he, they did throw him in a hole, like, you know, he, he still has constitutional rights, right? I mean, if they violated that, that could be a really big deal down the line.
4: Yeah, I, I think they're already um, skating danger of a mistrial in, in a certain couple of ways they've done this. And yeah, I hate that because, you know, uh, I want to see justice done for these little girls. You know, these, these are two kids. And I also want to see the Constitution upheld. And I want to see things done right. Because this system I have participated in for going on 20 years. And, you know, if you use it right, it works for the most part. Uh, but the whole using it right thing is a whole other conversation. But, uh, this, is a, this is wild. I mean, I've never seen it, anything like it. I've never seen the secrecy, uh, which, you know, we've discussed some of the, the reasons I believe that some of the secrecy has been as it was. The families are, are hurting. Uh, the community's hurting. And, you know, generally, in my experience, the remedy is, is to get it get it out there and get the people's business done.
0: We really appreciate
4: your insight. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you guys, you got any questions, whatever, hit me up anytime. Uh, you know, you're, you're great. I appreciate all the work you're doing. Um, I, I can't say enough uh, about how grateful I am to you for how you've handled this. There, there's been a lot of different ways You could have been just... Very aggressive and not nearly the grace that that you've employed. And I appreciate that as not only a citizen, uh, but as a professional. I
0: really appreciate that. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. That means a lot coming from you and and given your experience. Thanks to Gary and Jason for their helpful insight. Thanks to Gary and Jason for their helpful insights. Jason actually has a true crime podcast of his own in the works. It's called Code One. So definitely keep a lookout for that if you'd be interested in hearing more about his perspective on crimes.
1: We'll be continuing to bring on more experts with all sorts of relevant backgrounds to talk about the case. You'll likely find that some of the experts disagree on certain points, and that some may share opinions that clash with one another. Some will have concerns about some of the evidence mentioned in the probable cause affidavit. Others will tell us that it's strong and shaping up to be a solid case. In our view, all of that is fine.
0: Disagreements and differing opinions, as long as they're rooted in expertise, are fine with us. At this time, we want to serve the public by airing as many perspectives as possible to better our collective understanding of the case.
1: Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities.
0: If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support.
1: Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com.
0: If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join The Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.